Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Okay, let's dive into God's Word together. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 19. Um, If not, it'll be on the side screens. You can read along with us. But we're going to start in Luke 19, verse 28, and we're going to read the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Here's what God's Word says. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples ahead of him saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? (laughs) Valid question. Um, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I wish I could have gotten a little more backstory in that moment right there, but we don't get any more backstory. Goes on to verse 35, they brought it to Jesus Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, everyone that had seen him do the miracles and followed him since Galilee, they all began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop saying that. That's blasphemy. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. You know, Palm Sunday... And even though Luke's account doesn't mention the palm branches, we hear about that in Mark and John, whereas the crowds are praising Jesus and rejoicing and worshiping Jesus as he rides on this colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. They're waving palm branches and shouting to him. We learn from the other stories of this moment. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name Of the Lord. And this entire story, this whole passage is really focused on one primary thing. It's focused on the kingship of Jesus, it's focused on Jesus as king. And if we're honest, in this room today, all of us, or at least most of us, I would say, love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. We love the idea of Jesus as the one who gives us grace, as Jesus our provider, our healer, as Jesus, you know, the one who forgives us of our sins and gives us new life. However, 
If we're honest, I would say most of us struggle at some level with the lordship and kingship of Jesus over our lives. And friends, until we receive Jesus not just as Savior, but as King, as Lord, we don't really know him. You can't just pick and choose the parts of Jesus like a buffet that you want to believe in. He is both Savior and Lord. And so here's what we learn, and the thing that struck me as I was studying this passage and looking at the whole idea of the triumphal entry when they declared Jesus to be king and Palm Sunday, which really is the trigger point for the death of Jesus. It's the moment that leads to Jesus's death on Good Friday, which we're gonna celebrate in just a few days. Side note, you're invited to join us for a Good Friday service in a week. We'd love to have you here. But this is the trigger point. And the amazing thing to me is this, and this is my, my title for today's message. What do you do, what do I do when Jesus doesn't fit your agenda? What do we do when Jesus doesn't fit into our idea of what Jesus should be doing? Because as you look at this passage, everything leading up to it and everything following after it, Jesus unequivocally, without shame, legitimately offends every single group of humans that he comes into contact with. Just goes for it. He even offends his disciples. He, defend, he offends the crowds. He offends the, the Roman political authority. He, he offends the religious leaders. He offends the, the business owners and the merchants in the temple when he turns over their tables. Jesus just goes, I mean, he just offends everyone. No holds bar, no one is exempt. He has his own agenda. He has a plan from God. He goes, look, I am here not to do your will, but my Father's will. I'm here to fulfill his mission. I am one with the Father. The Father and I are one. I am the living, breathing representation of God on earth. And I'm here to fulfill his plan of salvation. And I know right now, you've got other plans for me. He even says it to his disciples. Everybody has an agenda for Jesus. The question is this, are you willing to submit and surrender to Jesus's agenda for you? And here's why you can trust it. Because he's the only king that came to die for you. Jesus's agenda for you, I promise you, is better than your agenda for you. His agenda for your life, his plan for your life, is better and more trustworthy than your own. What I love about this story is we see, we see the tension of competing agendas in this story. And I don't know, I think this is especially true, you can probably relate to this more if you're married, and uh, men, you know, I'll just speak to you guys because I'm, I can relate with your experience probably more than the wives in the room. But if you're married and you've been married for any amount of time at all, you understand the feeling of what it feels like to live in the tension 
of either miscommunicated, misunderstood, or competing agendas. Can I get an amen from any married folk in the room? (laughs) We've all been there, right? Now, you know, there's a bunch of scenarios at which these competing agendas rise to the surface within marriage, but one of the key ones that I've noticed recently in my own life is whenever we as a family, and I never choose this on my own, but it's whenever we as a family decide to go to the mall. And here's how this plays out. I have an agenda at the mall. I have a mission-specific, mission-critical agenda at the mall. It's very simple. I have a checklist of items that are required on this trip to the mall. I know where they are, and I have a plan to go directly to those items, get them, and then leave as fast as possible. Men, anybody with me in this room, all right? (laughs) Now, ladies, the two women in my life, my wife and my daughter, they have a different agenda. The mall is an experience. It's, hey, yeah, we got a few things on the list, but we just want to see what else might be here. We need to check out some other stores. Oh, I didn't even, I forgot. I probably need to go check that place out as well. And, you know, what, became, what started in my mind as a mission-specific, mission-critical objective soon turns into, can I just go sit outside on a bench and you let me know when you're ready? <laughs> and that's just the reality, right? There is tension when agendas are miscommunicated, confused, or even at odds with one another. We've all experienced that, and I know that's a ridiculous example, but we've experienced that on some pretty serious levels in our lives. That's where tension arises from in most relationships. And what Jesus is doing is this, as he heads to Jerusalem, as he heads towards the final week of his life, as he heads down the home stretch, and he knows... Once I make this statement, once all of my followers begin to praise me as Messiah, as king, right in the heart of the temple, this will be the tipping point at which I'm arrested and eventually put to death. He knows this. This is a part of his agenda. And friends, I want to say this. If you're in a moment in your life right now where you're looking at your situation, and you're confused, you're disoriented, maybe even afraid, you're anxious, I want you to remember this. The very disciples that walked with Jesus for three years, even though he told them on multiple occasions, guys, my plan is to go to Jerusalem and die, to be crucified, but don't worry, on the third day I'm gonna rise again. He told them this multiple times. The very disciples who walked with Jesus For three years, when they saw Jesus one week later hanging on the cross, they said, this isn't part of the plan. This wasn't part of our agenda. This wasn't supposed to go this way. They were confused. They were distraught. They were anxious. They scattered. They ran. Their Messiah was dead. The one that they had hoped would be their Savior, especially, specifically from Rome, was dead. He was killed by the Romans. They couldn't see the bigger picture. They didn't understand God's agenda. And even though it felt like 
all of their plans, all of their agenda was falling apart like all their hopes had been shattered. And maybe that's where you are today. Jesus was saying, trust me. I'm trying to tell you before this happens, I know the end from the beginning. I have a good plan for your life. This isn't gonna go the way you think it's gonna go because I'm not here to fulfill your small agenda for my life. I'm here to fulfill the Father's agenda for the world. And yes, you want me to show up and you want me to cast judgment on Rome. Sure, that might give you guys a little peace for a few years, but that's not gonna bring blessing and salvation to the whole world. And yes, the Roman Empire might be causing you discomfort and pain and oppression right now, but I wanna deal with the one thing that's gonna cause you pain and discomfort and oppression for eternity, sin and death. That's what I'm here to deal with. That's my agenda. So even though right now, I'm not really fulfilling your agenda for my life, trust me, my plan is better. It's better than yours. What we understand from this passage, from this story, I think is three things. I'm gonna show us where I, I see these in the text. Number one, we learn that Jesus is the true king. He's the true king. There's one true king of the entire universe and it's Jesus. Number two, we realized he's a trustworthy king. I think in America, man, our, the very fabric of our nation is built on this idea um, we don't trust monarchs. We don't want any dictators or any one human with absolute power over us. We've seen history that goes bad. But Jesus can be trusted, and I'll explain why. And then number three, the entire story of the triumphal entry, it begs a question to you and to me. Is he your king? Not just your savior, not just your friend. Is he your king? Because unless he's your king, you don't fully know him. Let's dive into God's word. Here's what I want to look at first. Number one, how does this passage show us that Jesus is the true king? Well, the first thing that we see is this. He tells his disciples to go to the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. In other words, this is going to be the vehicle by which I enter the city of Jerusalem. Why is Jesus asking for a colt, the foal, uh, a baby donkey? Why? How does this show that he's the true king? Well, Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, and Zechariah 9.9 Listen to these words. This is astounding. It's astoundingly specific and accurate. Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was so specific. He said, look, I need to fulfill all the prophecies spoken of me in the Old Testament. I need to fulfill these. I'm about my father's business. I need to show the world that God is a promise-keeping God. 
And so Zechariah prophesied that the king would come riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and Jesus goes, uh, boys, I need a couple of you to go get me one of those. I'm gonna ride in on that. I'm the true king. I have come. The one who was spoken of and prophesied about is here. That's what Jesus is saying. Then it goes on, verse 37. As he was drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, that is everybody that had experienced his teaching, witnessed a miracle, been benefited or been blessed by his ministry in some way or another, all of his disciples or followers began to rejoice. So this is a much larger crowd than just the 12. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? Why were they doing this? For all the mighty works that they had seen. What Luke is telling us here is simply this. Israel's been looking for a Messiah, a Savior, a King. We have seen this guy raise the dead. We've heard stories that he's walked on water and calmed the seas during a storm. We have seen him cast out demonic spirits. We've seen him heal the lame, the sick, the blind, the deaf, the mute. We have watched him restore every form and manner of brokenness among the human race. We've seen all the mighty works that he's done. He's our king. He's got to be the one. He's the true king. And guess what? They were right. He just wasn't there to fulfill their agenda. They didn't realize why the king had come. Here's another fascinating thing about this specifically. He's walking down the Mount of Olives towards the city, and I want you to see a, a picture of this. The Mount of Olives is right here. So it's right next to the old city of Jerusalem. The temple is right here. In Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel prophesies, he says, the glory of the Lord, the righteous one, will enter the city by the eastern gate. He will enter the temple by the eastern gate. When Jesus got to Bethany, which is where he raised Lazarus from the dead, moved onward to Bethphage, which is where he got the colt, and then rode down the Mount of Olives, which isn't very steep. It's not like what you would think of as a mountain. You can see the entire panoramic view of the city from the Mount of Olives, but it's more like a hill that goes down to a valley. Then you come up the eastern steps of the temple. But what's amazing is this. Jesus is not just fulfilling Zechariah 9. He's entering through the eastern gate, which is going to make a huge statement. There's a whole bunch of gates that Jesus could have come through in Jerusalem. He could have picked any, any one of them. But he said, nope, I'm entering through this one on a baby donkey for a very specific reason. And this exact moment in the temple, he goes in, and then you remember he flips over the money changers, and he, he drives them out of the temple, those who are taking advantage of the poor, who had to buy sacrifices for the offerings. At this time, during the Passover, there would have been quadruple the amount of people uh, that would normally be there because everybody is coming for the feast of Passover to sacrifice in the temple. Jesus is strategically making an entrance and an appearance that says, I am the true king. 
I'm coming right here into the heart of it all. They're gonna call me the king. They don't know why I'm here. They've got the wrong agenda, but it's true. I'm the true king. I'm fulfilling a whole bunch of prophecies in one moment, and ultimately, I'm here to die, and this is gonna be the tipping point. And here's where Jesus really begins to demonstrate the truth of his kingship. I think this is actually one of the most defining proofs that Jesus is king. The very fact that he did not come to fulfill human agendas. The very fact that he came to fulfill God's agenda, and on the way to fulfilling God's agenda, he offended basically everyone on the way. I mean, imagine what the, the Roman political authorities would think if they, if they saw thousands of Jewish men and women praising this man as king, bringing a kingdom, praising him as king and bringing a kingdom. I mean, here's what they were saying. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, God, save us. Save us now. So they're declaring him not just to be a man, but to be a savior. God, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this, check this out, the coming kingdom of our father, David. Who was David in the Old Testament? What did David's kingdom represent? What are they saying? David represented the one season in Israel's history when they had political sovereignty over all of their enemies. So here they are shouting and praising Jesus as king, bringing a kingdom that's gonna conquer all of Israel's earthly enemies. If you're a Roman you know, leader or official in that context, you're thinking, that dude has to go. Jesus is offending the Romans, right? Then the Pharisees, the Pharisees show up on the scenes and they say, teacher, because they will not acknowledge Jesus as Lord or Messiah. They just called him rabbi. They said, hey, tell your followers to quit saying that. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, God, save us, and they're talking to you, and they're calling you the Messiah, the son of David, the one to bring the kingdom. Tell them to stop. Jesus goes, no. If they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out. Offensive. To the Pharisees, they wouldn't like that. The religious elite, the religious leaders, right? Now, think about this. This was fascinating to me. As you move on, right, he even deals with the disciples just before the triumphal entry. Look at this. It says this, as they, that's the disciples, heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. He goes, okay, guys, you're missing the point. I'm not here for your agenda. I'm not here to deal with Rome. I'm here to deal with something bigger. So I gotta tell you a story because he was near to Jerusalem. He's coming back to the city. And because they supposed, they thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He was bringing it right now. It's going down. This is it. And then he goes on to tell them a parable. He goes, hey, let me tell you a story, guys, because you're missing it. Let's huddle up, boys. Come here. Let me just try to get through to you one more time. I'm gonna tell you the story of a king who has a kingdom, 
And he comes, but in order to secure that kingdom, he has to leave for a while. And then he's going to come back. So when he leaves the first time, he puts all of his workers in charge of the kingdom, and they have to engage with one another in business and in commerce, and he gives each of them 10 minus, 10 uh, measurements of wealth that they have to be good stewards of. So he says, look, when the king goes, you guys have to engage with the stuff of earth as members of my kingdom, but remember, I'm coming back one day. And they're like, huh? Where are you going? Like, what are you talking about? This is it. It's going to happen now. He's like, no, it's not. I came to seek and save the lost. I'm going to die and then rise again. It says they could not understand what he was saying or what he meant by those things. So many of the people around Jesus, so many of the stories leading up to the triumphal entry, the rich young ruler, Jesus offends the rich young ruler by saying, look, money is your God. Money is your idol. If you want to follow me, if you want salvation, you got to worship me and cling to me and value me above all else. And the rich man walked away sad. He offended everybody as he was leaving Jericho and he healed blind Bartimaeus, who was hanging out with a bunch of lepers and beggars at the entry point of the city and who was considered unclean. Jesus said, I don't care. I'm gonna heal him. And then, just before he enters the city, he tells the story of Zacchaeus. Anybody grow up in Sunday school? You remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Come on, somebody. Felt boards. We're going back. And Jesus says, come down from there. We're going to your house today. And right in front of everybody, he goes to eat with Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, who throws a big party with all the other sinners. And then he says, look, I'm rich too. I'm the chief tax collector. I'm gonna pay back double anything I took from everybody. I'm gonna give back twice what I stole from all of you. I'm gonna make amends everywhere. And Jesus goes, oh, salvation has come to your house today. That's a contrasting picture of, hey, a rich ruler who was rejected because he couldn't let go of what he had, and then Zacchaeus, who was received by God because he says, I found the most valuable thing. It's him. The rest of the stuff, it's just, it's a side story. I got Jesus. That's what I need. That's what I want. And Jesus goes, saved. You're saved today. He offends the religious elite, the political elite. He offends his disciples Everybody had an agenda for Jesus, but Jesus was about his father's business. He serves no human agenda, no agenda but his own. He does not bow to the rich man. He does not bow to the criticism or the agenda of the religious leaders or the customs of the cultural elites. He does not fit the plan of his disciples. He does not fit the agenda of Rome. He overturns tables, and he calls people back to the Father in heaven. And his agenda is good. He can be trusted. Number one, he's the true king. Number two, he's a trustworthy king. I'll never forget this. When I was growing up, my father, I've mentioned this, was an Episcopal priest and at one point, he invited a friend of his over from England who was an evangelist. And before he came to our church, he had 
preached at several churches in America before he came to where we were. And one of those churches was in Philadelphia, and he shared a story with us as, a, as an opening to his talk, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget it. He said, you know, after I preached in Philadelphia, the pastor took me to see the Liberty Bell, and I got to see some of the, the mementos of the revolution, the American Revolution. He said, you know, in this antique store outside the city, I found signs, I found placards and trinkets, and they would say things like this, no taxation without representation. They would say things like, don't tread on me. And then he said this, but there was one that stopped me in my tracks. It says, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. His name was John Guest, and he told us later, he said, that sign stopped me in my tracks. He goes, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to the sovereignty of a king? And if you think about it, part of what makes America amazing is the fact that deep down in our fabric, we said we're developing a new form of government that has checks and balances so the the wickedness of a ruler cannot fully overtake us. And, you know, so far it's worked out pretty well. It's managed to put checks and balances and not give one person sole power because when one person has sole power, there's a long history of things not going well. The crazy thing is this. Jesus is not like earthly kings. The crazy thing is this. There is still something inside of each of us that is fascinated by royalty, by monarchs. That's why all of y'all got up at 3 a.m. and watched the royal wedding. I know, I didn't. Some of you probably didn't, but a lot of you did, admit it. You at least watched the news special on it the next day. We are, the royals are like the biggest celebrities in the world. Some of the biggest, we're fascinated with royalty, with kingship, but we don't want to be ruled We don't want anybody to say, I have a say over your life. I want a savior. I like the idea of a king. Do not tell me what to do. That's deep in the fabric of our nation. It's Again, it's part of what makes America, America. It's part of what makes America great. However, when it comes to our spiritual life, we kind of got to go through like a detox with this idea of a Lord, of a king who has authority to speak into our lives. And the way that we can trust this king, the way we know he is trustworthy is two things. Number one, he came in riding on the foal of a donkey. Do you know what that represents? Jesus will come again one day on a horse. And I imagine if the disciples didn't remember Zechariah 9 in that moment, I imagine there was some confusion in the camp. I imagine they were fired up like, Jesus, this is it. We're going to Jerusalem. You're going to show them what you can do. You're probably going to call down fire from heaven like Elijah and wipe out the Romans. Man, we have followed you through some hard days, but now it's all paying off. This is great. Okay, we're heading to Jerusalem through the eastern gate. This is awesome. And then Jesus is like, okay, someone go get me a baby donkey. They're like, time out. We were thinking more like black Arabian stallion, war horse, you know, like what a king would ride because you're the king. He goes, no, first, guys, I've told you over and over again, I'm the suffering servant. 
I'm here to save. I'm not here to kill the Romans. I'm here to save them. And I'm here to save you. I'm here on God's business, on God's agenda. And listen, friends, the reason that you can trust Jesus as king and his lordship over your life, even when in the moment you're like, this is confusing, I don't get this. I would prefer to do that. That feels more natural, that feels more fun. Lord, why am I in this pain or this suffering? I don't see the full picture of what's happening. In those moments, you can trust him because he's the God that died for you. He's the suffering servant who washes your feet, who washed the feet of Peter and the disciples. He's the one who says, the son of man did not come to be served like the kings of the earth, but to serve and give his life away for many. And that's what the foal of a donkey represented. He will come again on a horse. He will come again, and on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. You have the opportunity now to choose him and receive him as the suffering servant. There is a day that is coming where that choice is taken away, and your knee will bow, and your tongue will confess that he is king. The second reason that we know we can trust him is he's the God who weeps. Just before he enters the city, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he stops and he mourns over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew your visitation, the hour of your visitation and what would bring you peace. I'm here. I'm the one to save you. He's a compassionate God that enters into the pain and is brokenhearted when we don't see his offer of salvation and freedom and new life. That's how you know you can trust him. I'll close with this. The final thing that we have to answer and ask from this passage is not just is he the true king, we know he is. He came in fulfillment of the prophecies. Not just is he a trustworthy king, we know this because he came to serve and to save but we have to answer the question, is he your king? I'll never forget when my kids were younger uh, and we would have competing agendas in the house, especially when they were like five, four or five. And there were moments, and parents, you've probably had these moments where you're telling your child to obey you. And they say, why? Why am I not allowed to put this knife in that electrical socket? It looks so cool. It would fit perfect. No. Why? I'm not going to try to explain the reality of electricity to a four-year-old. No. Because I'm 30 and you're four. No. And there's a reality in our own lives where we may not see the full picture. We may not understand the end from the beginning because we're not God. We may say, Lord, this is uncomfortable. This is painful. Why is this happening? Why do I have to reconcile and forgive that person? Why do I have to be humble in this situation? Why should I say sorry when I know they never will? Why are you asking me to step out on faith here why are you asking me to fight for my marriage again? 
Why are you asking me to wait to get married? Why is my child going off the deep end? Why is my family facing this kind of suffering and pain? Why do bad things happen in the world? Why, why, why? And God is just saying, trust me. You see, what we're asking for in that moment is we're asking for God to give us the fullness of his plan for the entire world so that we can agree with him. We're looking for agreement. And he's looking for trust. I'm good. I have a plan. I have an agenda here. Trust me. You may not understand what is happening when I'm dying on the cross and your dreams feel like they're dying, but I'm saving you and the world. You may not understand what it feels like when you feel outcast and betrayed, but over and over again throughout scripture, we've been going through Genesis. Look at the story of Jacob. God gives Jacob a dream, says through you the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed. Your offspring are gonna be like the sand of the, the seashore. That's amazing, God, thank you. And then what happens? For 20 years, he's getting oppressed and cheated by Laban, his evil uncle. What about the dream, God? This feels like prison. Same thing with Joseph. God gives Joseph a dream, says, everyone's gonna bow to you and you're gonna provide food for the whole world in this dream. And he tells his dad and his brothers, his dad and his brothers get mad. What do they do? They betray him, they throw him into a pit, and then they sell him into slavery which he gets promoted out of slavery to a, to a ruler in, Egyptian, in an Egyptian household, and then he gets unjustly accused and thrown in prison for 14 years. And it's like, why, Lord? You told me I was gonna rule and reign. Trust me, Joseph. I have an agenda, I have a plan. What others have meant for evil against you, I'm gonna work it for your good and the saving of many lives. Trust me. That's what Palm Sunday is about. That's what the triumphal entry is about. He's trustworthy. Even in the moments we can't see it, we have to remember that he's not like the other kings. He's not like the other gods. He didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear the judgment that we deserved. He didn't come to be served by us, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for us. He did not come to start a rebellion against Rome. He came to reconcile our rebellion against God. He did not come to destroy and kill his enemies. He came to save and rescue those who hated him. He said, I'm not here to deal with your earthly agenda or your earthly enemies. I'm here to deal with sin and death, which is far more dangerous. Trust me, what I have for you is better in the end. And friends, every week we close with communion. The question is this, is he your king? He can be trusted, he is the true king. Is he your king? Have you received what he's done for you on the cross and have you said, Lord, I am submitting and surrendering my life to you? And communion represents what Jesus did for you, how much he loves you, that God is for you, because it represents his death on a cross for our sins. We're gonna take a moment to reflect on what Jesus did for us, and then we'll close our time. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.